Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share the universal secret to growing any business, how to build a unicorn startup, what the real definition of an entrepreneur is, and much more with our guest, Jim McKelvey. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, All you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous interview, we shared the power of the experimental mindset. How can you use experiments to make better decisions and improve your life? What makes for good experiments? We shared all of this and much more with our previous guest, Stefan Tomke. Now, for our interview with Jim. Jim McKelvey is an American serial entrepreneur, artist, and philanthropist best known for his popular invention, Square. He has founded seven businesses in the technology and craft field. In addition to Square, he founded the nonprofit Launch Code and Third Degree Glass Factory. Jim is also an author, having written two computer programming textbooks while in school, the best-selling book, The Art of Fire on Glass Art, and most recently, The Innovation Stack, building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time. Jim, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you, Matt. This is going to be fun. 
I'm so excited to have you on the show today. You have an incredible career filled with so many interesting stories and, and, and a fascinating journey from the world of glass blowing to the Federal Reserve to co-founding Square, which is a massively successful company. Tell me a little bit about your story and your background and, and how you've woven together so many disparate and, and different things. So there was no plan. I <laughs> went into college not knowing anything I was going to be doing. I had a conversation with my father where he recommended that I not be an engineer because he thought engineering was too solitary a practice. He thought I'd be more interested in liberal arts. So he recommended I study economics. And I said, okay, dad, I'll be an economist. So I studied economics, got halfway through my freshman year and realized that econ was kind of boring. And it was actually more solitary than the engineering classes because the problems that the engineers were working on required teams to get them right. Whereas the econ stuff was easy enough that you could do it by yourself. And so ironically, I found that uh, doing really hard science was a more social activity. So I gravitated towards that and ended up doing all sorts of crazy stuff during college that I, I had no qualifications to doing. So my God, I wrote, I wrote a couple of computer textbooks. I guess you mentioned those when I was a freshman in college. And I was not one of these kids that loved computers when I was a kid. I never played with computers. I never had a computer. I basically saw my first computer when I got to college. And I was so overwhelmed by how difficult it was to work with these machines. And then on top of that, I was really frustrated because the professor from my class had written the textbook and this thing was just garbage. Like It was terrible. <laughs> and it was out of date and the programming examples didn't work. And I was so pissed off that I said to my roommate, you know, I could write a better textbook than this. And he turns around and he goes, well, why don't you? And I was like, okay, I will. So basically on a bet, I decided to replace my professor's textbook with a textbook that I had written. And yeah, again, I had no qualifications for this, but it turns out it's not that hard to write a programming textbook. You just have to do a lot of work. Like there's like, you don't have to come up with a plot. There's no characters. Like if you're willing to just grind it out and figure out what works on the computer and what doesn't, anybody could do this. And so I did it. The book got published, and this was back in the days before self-publishing, so you had to actually interest a real publishing house. And the publishing house took the book, asked for another book, and by the time I was a sophomore, I had more publications than a lot of my professors. So it was this really early lesson that it's possible to do something for which you have no official qualification. And that's sort of been the base note of my career because I mean, if you, man, if you think about all the stuff you listed out, like none of the stuff that I've done have I had an official credential to do. I mean, even these days, I'm on the Federal Reserve, I vote on interest rates, and like I've got an undergraduate degree in economics. Like, I mean, they let me vote on interest rates, and I don't have a PhD or a master's degree. Like, I couldn't draw the Phillips curve if I had to, but it's. It's amazing to me the things that a person can can accomplish even without an official credential. And so that's sort of the thing that ties my career together. And then, you know, glass blowing was something else I did. I've, I've done it for years. I'm actually heading into the studio right after this interview and I'm going to make some Christmas gifts. So, wow, it's just this crazy, weird hodgepodge of stuff that I do. So interesting. I love this concept of not having the qualifications or doing things without being worried or concerned about whether or not you're qualified to do it. In some ways, it seems like that 
stifles so many people from even trying or, or beginning their journey. Oh, absolutely. So one of the reasons I wrote this book, as a matter of fact, the primary reason I wrote this book was to reach out and tell people, you will almost always be unqualified if you're doing something interesting. And by interesting, I mean something that has not been done before. Because think about it. Okay, most of the stuff that we do in our lives is a copy of something else. As a matter of fact, that's, that's what school is, right? You, most of the time in school, are learning to do what other people have learned to do. And good behavior and good grades come from replicating stuff that has been learned by others. And if you think about what we do in business, most of the time, the smart thing to do is find an expert, find somebody who solved that problem, you know, hire McKinsey, like get, get somebody who has done what you need to do and have them teach you how to do it or steal their ideas or, I mean, replication, replication, copy, copy, copy. And this is sort of the base note of our lives. We are copying machines. And I've got a little daughter at home. She's two. And she is just a sponge. She copies you know, anything we say, anything we do, like you want to make a kid hop in a circle with one hand above your head, like in my house, you just do that. And this little girl will come and just hop for no reason in a circle with one hand raised, because that's what humans and animals and businesses do. We copy stuff. It's the thing that is the smartest decision. Like we, we copy because it works, but sometimes if you are doing something that is new, that has never been done before, if you're trying to solve a problem that nobody else has solved, you don't get to copy. And at that moment, you are going to feel supremely unqualified. You will be like one of those, you know, remember those old movies where, you know, the pilots die and they run into the back of the plane and goes, does anyone know how to land a 737? You know, I mean, like not a 737 max, but like like a normal 737. Like that's everybody's fear is that they're going to be called out of the cap and, and put in the cockpit. And the stewardess is going to say, land this sucker. Right. <laughs> but what I've learned. Is just through this weird, I wouldn't even call it a career, but whatever I've done, that's sort of the different types of work I've done. I've learned that it's possible to be successful if you're not qualified. And the reason I wrote the book is I want to encourage people to get over that fear of being unqualified, because if you are doing anything interesting, by definition, you don't get to copy the solution. And therefore, you are going to feel unqualified. In other words, you're trying to figure out something that nobody's figured out before. The first thing that's going to hit, at least, I mean, just speaking for my first, the, this, the first thing that hits with me is this little voice in my head that says, Jim, you have no idea what you're doing. You have never done this before. You have no experience. And the first thing I always do is I look for somebody who's done it before and I try to copy what they've done. But, but sometimes there is nobody. And when we were starting Square, nobody had built a payment system for tiny, tiny merchants and individuals. It just didn't exist. And so Jack and I were out on our own. We, we had nobody to copy. When we were starting Launch Code, which is this nonprofit that's actually now around the nation, in various cities, but we were trying to solve a problem that nobody had ever been able to solve before. And in my current company, Invisibly, we're, we're tackling this problem that like nobody's been able to fix this. And we don't even know if the solution is possible, but we know that we are supremely unqualified to do what we're doing. 
so interesting. There's a number of, of really important points that come out of that. One, which I thought was such a fascinating insight from the book was, I think you call it the answer to almost every business problem is copying and replication. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the book. Okay, so this is great. So I, I wrote the book completely. And I, I didn't know if it was any good or not. I didn't even know if I was going to publish it. And But at some point, I was like, okay, I got to show some publishers. So I got a book agent, great guy, Jim Levine. He took me around to all, all these you know, fancy publishing houses. One publishing house wouldn't even read it because they flipped through the book and there were no checklists. And they're like, we can't publish a book without checklists. And I was like, wait a second. Like, did you read it? And they go, like, no, we didn't have to read it. There were no checklists. And I was like, wait a second. How do I give you a checklist for something that nobody has done? And the editor just looked at me and she's like, if you want a business book, you have to have a checklist. So there is no checklist in my book. So I was feeling kind of guilty as I was writing it. I was like, oh my God, I got to give them like one thing, you know? So I gave the universal checklist, which is a one bullet point checklist to solve any problem in any existing business. So here it is. This is the, this is the great secret, the, the, the science of success. You will live up to your title better than you have ever lived up to the title of this whole series at this moment. I am about to reveal the universal secret of success in any existing business. Copy. Just do what everybody else does. Like that works. Figure out what everybody else is doing. Do the same damn thing. Hire their people away. Copy their stuff. Just do the same thing. That almost always works. The only time that doesn't work is if you are trying to do something truly new. And so what I spend the rest of the book is for those people who don't want that one bullet point checklist. Because let me tell you, Matt, when you are doing something that is different from what has been done before, it feels so weird. And a different set of rules apply. And the rules that you're used to using, the ones that serve you every day as a human and as a you know, person who's working or as a, you know, as a friend, as a family member, like all the stuff that we do has this base note of, of copying. We are so comfortable copying. We are so good at it. We are literally genetically programmed to do it that when you stop doing it, you are going to feel strange. And so I wanted to write a book for those people who have the ability to do something new, and I mean really new, and just feel weird because they are going to feel weird. I, I always feel weird doing it, but I figured, you know, maybe if I find some examples and give some principles and, and you know, tell some funny stories, because believe me, when, when you do stuff that, that has not been done before, like failure is your friend and failure is funny. Like failure is the basis of all comedy. Look at any great comedic persona. Like, you know what they talk about? The time it didn't work, right? When it works, that's boring. But boy, like sometimes I give speeches and I always give my audience like this choice. I say, would you rather have me tell you the story about how Jack Dorsey and I finally, after a year and a half of trying, convinced MasterCard to change their rules on card present aggregation, which was the single most important decision that allowed Square to exist. I mean, if MasterCard had not done that, I wouldn't have a, have a company right now. There would be millions of merchants who couldn't process credit cards. Like That was the single make or break decision. That was probably the single biggest business triumph in my life. 
and a great success. And it is a, it's an interesting story. I can tell you that story, or I can tell you the story about the time I failed to notice that one of my blind dates had an Adam's apple. Which story do you want to hear? Right? <laughs> so failure is this funny companion. And so in the book, talk a lot about failure, talk about how people throughout history have dealt with it. And I try to keep it funny. Yeah, that's a great point about how failure is the foundation of comedy. And the overarching point you're making around not having a map, not having a checklist. And if you're going to truly innovate, if you're going to solve, as you call it, and I want to dig into this more as well, a perfect problem. The quote that really jumped out at me from one of the early parts of the book was this quote that maps are for tourists, not explorers. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we tend to confuse words in the English language. And I think we tend to inflate words. And, you know, like, I'm going to explore Lake Tahoe this weekend. No, I'm not. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Lake Tahoe this week. Okay. Tahoe's been explored. Tahoe is, in, it's in Google maps. Like it's, it's right there. People have been there. You know, there may be some rainforest in some country that I couldn't find on a map that, that needs exploring. There's certainly parts of the ocean floor that might need exploring, but, but most of what we do as travelers is be tourists. And, you know, I live in the city where probably one of the greatest explorations of all times began. You know, Lewis and Clark started in St. Louis, Missouri to map the western part of the United States, and they did not have a map when they started. Okay. They had a river and a compass and a bunch of guys, many of whom were going to die. Okay. And that's what it's like exploring. And so you don't get a map. If you're an explorer, it's a different type of traveling. Okay. And as you go further into the wilderness, you're drawing the map as you go. I thought that was just such a powerful image and analogy. And it really gets to your definition of entrepreneur and entrepreneurship, which is quite distinct and and comes back to what you said a moment ago about how words today have had their meanings diluted. Yes. So I needed a word to describe something other than business, a business person, somebody who's a business person. What's, what's a business person? What do you call somebody who doesn't copy in the world of business? And most of the time you call them a failure, right? <laughs> most of the time, if you don't copy what works, you end up dead. But there is a small group of people who don't copy and survive. And those people I didn't have a word for. So I started looking at my history. And it turns out that the original use of the word entrepreneur was that meaning. The entrepreneur of 150 years ago, when Joseph Schumpeter, who's, a, who's an economist that basically gave us that word entrepreneur, he started using that word. And, and the reason he started using that word was to describe this weird behavior. It was not business as usual because business as usual is very rigid. It is slight refinement. It is replication. And it's smart. By the way, I'm not I'm not knocking people who intelligently copy what's been done before. Right. That's a that is a good formula for getting rich. That is a good formula for success. But what if you don't do that? 
And what do we call that person? And it turns out that the original definition of entrepreneur was somebody who did crazy things. And so I looked at the word entrepreneur in its current usage and I was like, oh my God, everybody in my world uses business person and entrepreneur interchangeably. So I've got a friend, he started a coffee shop, okay? And he says, I'm a coffee entrepreneur. And by today's definition, he's absolutely right. He started a coffee chain. And you know how many other people have started coffee shops? Like more than 10, okay? More than 10 people, more than 100, probably more than 1,000. He's doing something and he is starting a business, but he's starting a business that is known. And he can order his cups and the La Marzocco, you know, coffee steamer machine. I, I don't know. I'm not that much. I'm not a coffee person. But believe me, there's there's almost a checklist for what he is doing. So I needed to use the word entrepreneur, but I needed to use it in its archaic definition. So throughout the book, I use the word entrepreneur, but I spend, you know, paragraph and a half basically saying, look, when you read this word, I don't want you to think business. I want you to think crazy, okay? I want you to think somebody that people are pointing to and laughing at and ridiculing and going, what the hell were they thinking? You know, getting people to ride in strangers' cars. Like I remember when Uber was starting. So Uber and Square, you know, kind of started at the same time and they're kind of our roommates in the same, we're in the same building in California. And, you know, we bumped into them a bunch in New York. I mean, they they were sort of our, one of our classmates, right? And, you know, people don't remember what it was like in the early days of Uber, because these days everybody takes Uber and they take Lyft and you're totally comfortable getting in the car with a stranger. You know, when I was a kid, they would tell us at home and in school, never get into a stranger's car. Like that's what they teach you from the time you can walk. Don't get in the car with a stranger. You know, and if you did, you were a hitchhiker. Right. And you were a hitchhiker at your peril. And, and when we first saw Uber and Lyft coming on the scene and a, and a company called Sidecar, which nobody remembers Sidecar. But like these guys were radical because their idea was, well, you can get in the car with anybody. And we're like, no, you can't. That's hitchhiking. So we thought they were crazy. And that's what I want the word entrepreneur, at least for the purposes of our conversation and, and the book that I wrote to be used in that because I need a way to label that person because that person who's doing those crazy things has a totally different set of rules that apply and learning those rules and sharing those rules is what I wanted to do. I thought it was a great perspective and using the word subbing in the word crazy instead of the word entrepreneur helps to break apart the rigid and and modern definition of it and really open up the perspective of realizing that the kind of innovation you're talking about is really more somebody who's way on the fringe, who's pushing the limits, who's doing something that you don't, you by definition, don't even know if it's possible to solve this problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the thrill and it's part of the terror and, you know, thrill and terror are really close. You know, thrill is just terror. That's been constrained a little bit. It's been contained, you know, terror is when it breaks out of its container and just trashes your brain. But yes, I use the word crazy partially because we haven't denatured the word crazy, okay? The word entrepreneur has been so recycled by industry and by, well, frankly, the 
publishers of the world and the podcasts of the world and the people of the world who are selling products to people who want to be entrepreneurs or want to be business people. And, uh, you know, it's it's sort of like saying, you know, I don't want to be a tourist. I want to go on an adventure. Well, you know, really, do I? Because, like, I'm traveling with my family this week and I don't want to die or have one of my kids eat by some creature. You know, I probably don't want an adventure. Like, I want to do something cool, and I'd like to think of myself as an adventure. But you know what? In the end of the day, I'm probably going to sleep someplace that's got a pillow. But even though we've worn out the word entrepreneur, the word crazy still has this sort of negative connotation. Now, some people are like, oh, I like being crazy. But, I mean, if you're talking about the word crazy, it's not always a compliment, right? And I like this idea that we still have this word that has a little edge to it and a little bit of the being ostracized, that little idea of being kicked out. You're not part of this club. You're not behaving like the rest of us. So you know what? You're not welcome here. You're crazy. And we venerate these people in hindsight. Like when they succeed, we say, oh, hey, great idea. We were with you all along. And you know what? <laughs> they weren't. They show up when the exploration, when the adventure is over. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So that makes me come back to the other side of the coin or the other piece of this equation, which is to be an entrepreneur, you have to be solving a problem that hasn't been solved, something that's on the frontier. And as you call it, a perfect problem. Tell me a little bit more about what that is and, and how to discover one. Okay. So I talk in the book about my concept of, of the perfect problem. And the perfect problem, it was just a thought experiment that I did. I said, okay, imagine every problem in the world. Okay. There are lots of problems. I love problems because problems are easy to see. If you say, here's an opportunity, I can't tell you if it's an opportunity or not. But if you say, Jim, this is a problem. I will say, oh, yes, that's a problem. Or, oh, no, it isn't. But, but problems are these beautiful, discrete things. They can, problems have this beautiful characteristic of being visible. So then I said, okay, let's consider all the problems in the world. Okay. Many of those problems have already been solved. Okay. So, for instance, I'm going on vacation this weekend. I'm going to go to Lake Tahoe. You know, a problem I am expecting to have in Lake Tahoe is I'm going to need food. OK, and I expect that somebody in the greater Tahoe area has solved the problem of feeding me and my family. I just kind of assume that's a solved problem. Haven't been there. OK, can't prove it. Well, I guess I could probably prove it. I could go online, but I'm, I'm pretty darn sure that that is a solved problem. And so 
imagine every problem in the world that's already been solved doesn't count. Because if you want to solve one of those problems, all you got to do is find somebody who solved it and copy what they did. Those are copyable solutions. So let's eliminate those. Now, say those problems are on the left side because I'm a visual person. Those are on the left side of the screen. Okay. Now, over on the right side of the screen, we're going to throw every problem that is currently unsolvable. I'm sorry, we do not know how to fix that. We do not know how to cure that cancer. We do not know how to make that you know, car levitate. Like we do not know how to clean up politics. Like, we, we like just did unsolved problems. Okay. And then if you eliminate the problems that are unsolvable, they just, we don't have the tools yet to solve them. What you're left with in the middle are what I call the perfect problems. And these are problems that are solvable problems, but their solution cannot be copied. In other words, this is something that you or your team or some other group of dedicated, hardworking people could solve if they tried. They can't solve it by copying somebody else's solution, but by God, if they try hard enough, those are solvable problems. And that's what I focus on. I look for these things called perfect problems. And the perfect problem to me is something, first of all, that you care about. So to me, a perfect problem has this other criterion, which is that you care deeply about it. Because if you're doing something that is entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial in the traditional sense of the world, i.e. you're doing something kind of crazy, you are going to be very lonely and you're going to receive a lot of negative feedback and a lot of teasing and ridicule and, you know, basically just people will ignore you and it's, it's lonely and terrible. And you're going to need to sustain your energy through that period. Where does that energy come from? And the answer that I found motivates most entrepreneurs is they care deeply about a problem and then they don't want to die. Okay. So caring deeply about a problem is when Lewis and Clark say, okay, we are going to head West into this unknown territory. We don't know how big it is. We don't know how long it's going to take us. We are heading West. Okay. Once you start on the path, then motivation is really simple. Don't die. What the hell is that? oh my God, it looks like a bear, but it's five times bigger than any bear we've ever seen. What the, it's a grizzly bear. You've never seen a grizzly bear before. Congratulations. Here's a grizzly bear. You've got a new problem, but you don't have any motivational issues, right? <laughs> Run, <laughs> shoot. I don't know. <laughs> uh, outrun the other guy, scale a tree. I, I don't know how you get away from a grizzly bear, but believe me, when Lewis and Clark first saw a grizzly bear, they didn't sit there and say, oh, let's have a motivational moment here. You know, they were like, run. So you get this wonderful energy from a perfect problem that allows you to begin a journey. And then from there on, baby, it's survival instinct. You just don't want to die. You, you refuse to give up and let the bear win. That's a great analogy. And reminds me of something you said in a speech a couple of years ago around the difference between being bold and humbly persevering or humbly preserving. Yeah. So here's the thing about being bold. I have never been bold. I may have been crazy, but I, I'm not a bold person. I'm not a guy who does stuff that's risky. And for instance, I fly planes. I'm a pilot and I have occasionally flown into situations where I was terrified. Okay. Like if you're in a tiny little plane, like, you know, one engine, I mean, I fly a crummy old 
plane from the 1960s. Okay, it's a Mooney M20 Charlie, great little plane, really solid. You know, built you know during the space race. I mean, it was it's old, it's clunky, it's not a good plane to fly into a storm with. Okay, you're an idiot if you fly into a storm. You're an idiot if you fly near a storm. And one day I was an idiot. I got you know almost caught in a storm, and I was terrified. I mean, just terrified. But it turns out that I've done enough stuff in my life where I have been terrified that I'm actually able to function even though I'm terrified. So I was able to fly the plane, not because I'm a bold pilot, but because I'm actually good at being a terrified pilot. Like if you scare the crap out of me and then say, here, Jim, land this, watch your airspeed, watch your altitude, talk to you know, the controllers, get the plane on the ground safely, you know, get out of the situation, even though my hands are sweating and I am probably, you know, as scared as I've ever been, I can still function. And so I hear a lot of people give advice sometimes from stage. I sometimes hear entrepreneurs or people who've been very successful uh, give advice to audiences and they tend to spin it a little differently. They tend to tell these hero stories about how they were so bold and how they were so brave and how when everyone turned against them, they didn't care. Well, I mean, I care. Okay. I don't like that stuff, but what I've been able to do and, and recommend as a solution for those of us who are not bold is don't worry about being fearless. Don't worry about boldness. Don't worry about overcoming your fear. I would say the trick is to just begin. Okay. Begin the journey. Understand that you will take that first step and the second step and the 27th step. And at some point you will be on the path. And once you're on the path, then the only question is, will you keep going? When do you quit? At what point do you run out of energy or resources? When do you give up? But if you don't quit, even though you're scared, you don't need to be bold. Like boldness doesn't enter into it. You can be terrified as long as you can function in a state of terror. That's fine. So I tell this story often when, you know, when I'm asked to, you know, give a speech about a time I was terrified and had to keep going. And I, I guess you saw one of those speeches, but like that's, that's to me the essence of what the rest of us need in order to solve problems. Because, because look, let me tell you this. And this is the reason I love your podcast. Okay. The people who listen to this podcast are interested in bettering themselves. They're interested in building new things. They're interested in somehow moving the world forward. Now, they may be interested in just you know moving their careers forward and copying, and you get no judgment from me on that. That's cool. That works. By the way, you're smarter than those of us who are probably going to do stuff that might not work. Okay. But now let me address that second group, the people who are going to do stuff that might not work. Because if you're in that group, you are going to feel really scared alone. And I wanted to reach out to that group and say, look, a lot of the advice you hear is crap. Okay. Because what about the person who has the ability to solve a perfect problem? They know what they want to do. They want to do it. They're going to go up against incredible odds and they're afraid. And they say to themselves, oh, I'm probably not qualified to do this because I'm afraid. And I know when I'm afraid, I'm afraid for a good reason. So I'm not going to get into a car with a stranger or I'm not going to do this thing. And I'm telling you, that's a load of crap. You've been told your whole lives to be afraid for very good reason. That fear 
saved your life hundreds of times growing up. And it saves your life, you know, probably several times a year just as a, as a sentient adult. But sometimes that fear stops you. And the time to be afraid is when there is a known problem. If it's an unknown problem, your fear is still there, but it is now kind of irrational because how do you know? Nobody's been there. And by the way, in business, nobody kills you. Well, like in most businesses, but like any of the businesses I I get into, I, I almost got into a business that would kill me. I was in a roofing business for a while. That almost killed one of my guys. We fell through a roof, <laughs> 20 feet through a roof, bang. And I got out of that business because like, oh, I don't want to do business that actually could literally kill me. And Square could have failed, but Jack and I would have still, you know, we'd still be alive now. You know, a lot of the stuff that I do, failure means, well, the company loses a bunch of money and you've wasted a bunch of time. Usually doesn't mean actual death. But again, your brain is not good at differentiating death fear from just sort of lose your money fear. So I try to address that. That's such a great point. And the fact that the way that our brains evolved means that we can't really distinguish between existential mortal threats and business threats. It's such a great piece of advice to really start to get comfortable with discomfort and get comfortable being afraid when you're facing a tough business challenge. Because not only are the stakes not as low as your brain often makes them feel like they are, but the reality is, and I this to me is one of the most important things that you've said in this whole conversation is this idea that there's a huge difference between boldness or even what boldness looks like from the outside and with being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and look, remember a lot of people who preach how bold they are, like I know some of these people. Okay. (laughs) I knew them before they were bold. Okay. Or at least I don't remember them being that way. There is a little bit of inflation. Once you're successful and they hand you the microphone, it's easy to be bold. But yeah, being comfortable with discomfort, that sounds like such a contradiction. But, you know, I think of Harry Houdini, right? One of the greatest escape artists in the history of the world, one of the greatest magicians, fantastic guy, right? Used to, you know, lock himself up, have other people lock him up. And then he would he had this, all these ways of picking locks and he was really good at getting out of locks and he would sometimes have them chain him up and chain him in a box and then throw the box in a river, right? And a river is like 60 degree water sometimes. So he would have to, you know, deal with not only picking a lock underwater in the dark, holding his breath, but he would have to do so in the cold, right? So Houdini as just a regular practice every day took a cold shower. And like, if you've ever taken a cold shower, like the first 10 times you do it, it sucks. And about like, if you do it every day, at some point you get used to it. You just go, oh, well, now I'm going to take a shower. And the fact that the water is 50 degrees doesn't freak you out anymore. Most of us never get to that point because most of us live in civilized dwellings. But Houdini used his cold shower to become comfortable with a discomfort that he knew he was going to face. So being thrown in the river... All of a sudden, he doesn't have to deal with the fact that his body's cold because he's like, oh, yeah, it's just like in my morning. It's every day. It's actually familiar to him. So one of the things that I recommend, and Matt, at the beginning, I guess you asked me for some you know, suggestions for, for your audience. And, and I think, okay, I really can't give you any specific advice on entrepreneurship because by my definition, entrepreneurship is something that hasn't been done before. So I have nothing to offer you, like zero. <laughs> I'm sorry, like nothing. 
but what I can tell you, and this has been really effective for me personally, is occasionally do something that makes you really uncomfortable, right? Go talk to a stranger or, or give a public speech or dress in a way that nobody else is dressing or go someplace that you don't like or eat some weird food, or like, you know, travel or you know, hang out with your enemy, okay? Like, I wish Washington would do this a little bit more. You know, like, why don't they have Republican and Democrat, you know, mixers anymore? I mean, just just open up a bottle of gin and see if we could solve some problems, you know? But I really believe that a person can get used to the feeling of discomfort and then the feeling of being able to still function when in that state. And believe me, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you will be uncomfortable. Your physiology, your brain, the way you are evolved is going to tell you something's wrong and you need to have enough familiarity with that feeling to go, oh, well, that's just me being terrified. Oh, that's just me feeling really uncomfortable or, oh, that's just my need for, you know, positive reinforcement, you know? So you can get over that stuff. Now, I'm not saying being a total jerk, okay? I'm not saying going around and and just making, you know, a, a public nuisance of yourself, but, you know, up to a point, yeah, sure. Do something that you're not going to just get heaps of praise for. Because believe me, if you're one of these people, and I'm one, okay? Like if you're one of these people that craves praise, that lives for the, oh, that's a great job. We love it. You know, you're going to feel so weird when you actually start doing something that is new because you're not going to get any praise. It just doesn't come. Nobody knows how to praise something that hasn't been done before. We, ha- we lack the vocabulary. I want to come back to the broader question or problem around innovation. The name of the book is The Innovation Stack. Tell me a little bit about what is an innovation stack and, and how do you think about as somebody who's innovated and built incredible companies and organizations across a huge array of, of verticals and, and areas, how do you think about what innovation is and what is an innovation stack? So to me, the idea of the innovation stack is a series of independent and interdependent solutions to new problems. And what I realized when I started doing my research was that this cascade of solutions was in itself this massively powerful business tool. And I discovered it by accident. So what happened in our case was Square got attacked by Amazon. And Amazon is the scariest company on the planet as far as I'm concerned. Like if you want to name a company that's going to attack you, it better not be Amazon. Like Amazon is the is the deadliest. And I know Google's terrifying and Facebook can scare you if you're a tech, but like nobody's worse than Amazon, like at least for us. And Amazon did to us what they did to many other companies. And that is they copied our product, undercut our price by 30%. They offered a bunch of features that we didn't have. And then they said, okay, we're now going to take over your market. And by the way, this works for Amazon in so many areas. Okay. They are the kings of taking over other people's markets through that formula that I just gave you. Oh, there, look, there's a second checklist. Okay. So if you happen to be Amazon, you now have, well, they already knew that, but Maybe somebody from Baidu is listening. They can do the same thing. Undercut the competitor by 30%, copy their product, and watch them die. Okay? Beautiful. There's another checklist for you. So they did this to us, and we didn't die. 
As a matter of fact, we survived and eventually Amazon retreated. And when I saw this happen, I was like, why? Like, how did we win? What, what happened? And that's actually the research that started this book because I couldn't figure out why we won. Like I knew what we'd done, but I didn't know why it worked. And so I started looking for other examples and looking and looking, looking. It took me three years to find a pattern. And then once I saw the pattern, I was like, oh my God, the pattern is everywhere. It's so pervasive that it in fact exists at the beginning of almost any significant industry. And what that is, is a stack of innovations, a series of interrelated discoveries and new applications for old discoveries. So for instance, you know, the easy one is the Wright brothers and the airplane, right? And you think about the Wright brothers and you think about their airfoil designs. Okay. And the fact that they had a wind tunnel and could test their designs and, you know, a lot of history of the Wright brothers talks about how important that was. But if you think about the airplane itself, there were so many things that they had to figure out how to do. They had to figure out how to make lightweight structures. Well, they could copy some of that for gliders, but gliders behave differently because gliders didn't have to have engines. So they had to have an engine, but the engine had to be light enough to turn a propeller. But what's a propeller? Because nobody had built a propeller before. So they had to develop a propeller. And then once they got in the air, well, they had to figure out how to steer and nobody knew how to steer because nobody had been in the air before. So they had to figure out how to you know, maneuver. And then, well, they had to figure out how to land because eventually the plane had to come land. And well, nobody figured out how to land because nobody figured out how to fly. And you don't learn how to land until you first figured out how to fly. So they had to fix all this stuff at the same time. And what they ended up doing was not one or two things differently, but they did like 15 or 20. And that to me is what an innovation stack is. It's this interlocking, interdependent solutions to problems. And the way these evolve is so interesting. And I look in the book at innovation stacks throughout history and, you know, starting a hundred years ago and then kind of working up to present day, how these things tend to evolve in different parts of the world at different points in history, in different industries, but they all follow these patterns. And so that's what we discuss. We talk about the patterns. So the hope is that somebody who is building a solution to a new problem or to an unsolved problem, to a perfect problem, is most likely not going to find one solution. What they will do is they will start with one thing and they'll fix that. And then the solution to that problem will probably cause other problems. Okay. So take the Wright brothers. Well, they need to make the plane move. So how are you going to do that? Well, how about our propeller? Okay. But well, now you got to turn the propeller. So you got two sources of power. You either got the human, you can like make him pump a bicycle pedal. I mean, and the Wrights were, you know, they owned a bicycle shop. So they kind of thought, well, human power works, works for bicycles. But if human power isn't enough, well, you have an engine. Well, now we got to make an engine. Okay, so they got an engine. Problem with the engine is it weighs 50 pounds. So now your whole aircraft has to support 50 pounds of engine. So now your light little glider just turned into a much heavier structure. And now your wing spars have to be heavier and all your control surfaces have to be stronger. And like solving one problem causes other problems. And what happens in the course of solving these new problems is you end up in one of two places. You either end up dead because you fail to solve some problem at some point. So if the rights have not been able to strengthen the frame of the airplane to the point where it would support the engine, well, the plane would not have flown. It would have broken in half, but they solved that. And then the other option is you end up 
solving all your problems and eventually come up with this stack of interlocking innovation. And that is what I call an innovation stack. All right. So correct me if this is a mischaracterization, but the idea is that when you start to solve a really unique, difficult, as you would call it, a perfect problem, you initially come across one innovation that then unlocks another problem or challenge, and then you create another innovation to solve that. Eventually, these sort of stack together in a way that you've built a backbone or some sort of competitive differentiated structure, as you call it, an innovation stack that then helps that business even stave off or defeat some brutal competition in, in the case of Square Amazon coming in and trying to destroy the company. Oh, yeah. And in, in, in every case where I studied one of these companies that had evolved an innovation stack, these companies were viciously attacked. I mean, what happened to Square, like we were just attacked by Amazon, okay? <laughs> like that was not nearly as bad as what happened to some of the other companies that I studied. You know, we weren't banished from our home country, okay? <laughs> we weren't kicked out of the United States. Like that happened to one guy. Like we weren't attacked by the federal government. Like that happened to another guy. Like, you know, there are worse things than being attacked by Amazon. And I, I chronicle a lot of that. But the durability of the innovation stack is amazing. And it's not just it's not just one thing leads to another, but it's it's this snarly mess of interrelated effects. So that for instance, if you make one change to one thing, and that changes, let's say, the way your customer has to use your product, well, now you've changed how the customer interacts with your product, and you may have changed the way the product is delivered, which may change something else. So all of these things eventually interrelate. And there's some great examples. I know we're, we're running out of time, but there's some really good examples in the book of how these innovations all stack together and build on one another from the cheap hardware component of Square and how that enabled you to have lower acquisition costs and lower barriers to onboarding to Southwest and the the standardization of their fleet and all of the synergies that came out of that. So many interesting insights from this, this business model, this perspective. It's a great way to approach solving any difficult problem. Yeah, I think it's a good framework to have. And, you know, I've got two young kids. And the first thing you know about being a parent is your kids never listen to you. And I thought, well, my kids are never going to listen to my advice, but maybe if I get hit by a bus or something happens to me and I wanted to pass one or two messages into the future to my children, like this would be what I'd want to pass. I'd like, I'd like to have my children feel that they are powerful enough to do things that have not been done before. And I wanted to pass that on to everybody, not just my kids, but when I was writing it, you know, I had this idea that, you know, somehow something had happened to me and these were the only words that I could leave behind. And, you know, that's a tough lesson to pass on. And so what I wanted to do was make it as funny as possible to read and then to, you know, sort of confess that, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of stuff go right and hopefully some more stuff in the future will go right. But boy, the real skill that I want to get people comfortable with is when things go wrong and how do you handle that and what do you do and what have people before you in history done and how do they feel about it? And so to, to bring this all the way back and, and you shared some great strategies throughout this conversation, but for listeners who want to concretely implement one thing that we've talked about today, what would be one piece of homework or one action item that you would give them to start taking action in some way? So... And I don't think I discussed this in the book, 
I might, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know if this is in the book or not. It was, it was there for a while and then I think I cut it out. But I have this idea of a personal energy score. And I always think of things that I do either increasing or decreasing my energy. So for instance, get a good night's sleep, increase your energy, eat well, increase your energy, get some rest, hang out with people that make me laugh, increase energy, you know, go to long meetings, decrease energy, get a subpoena, decrease energy, be in a room that's too cold, decrease energy. So I, I'm constantly sort of looking at my day and my week and I guess more than that as things that either add to my energy supply or decrease my energy supply. And by the way, if this is not in the book, I promise on jimmckelvey.com I will put this essay because I know I've written about it. And it's a great trick. Like you want, you know, Matt, you want a trick? Here's a trick. Personal energy score. Manage your energy. And the idea here is that you want to do things that increase your score and consciously, you know, catalog them. So, for instance, I have terrible taste in music. As a matter of fact, my taste in music is so abhorrently bad that I don't even tell people what I listen to. And as a matter of fact, I'm embarrassed by it. You know, I, I jealously hide my Spotify playlist sometimes. But the, you know, the songs I listen to kind of psych me up. And so I will often listen to that if I'm going into anything. And the idea is I just get a little more energy from. It. I get a little boost. And, you know, the, the real question of when does an entrepreneur fail, to me, is when does the entrepreneur quit? It's the same question because I don't think of failure as this thing of, oh, the product doesn't work. Dude, the product is never going to work. OK, it's never like if you're if you're an engineer and I was trained as an engineer, you never get to work on a product that functions. Right. If it functions, you hand it over to the marketing department. You're done as an engineer. OK, so me, my life, my career, I never get to work on stuff that functions because if it functioned, I wouldn't be working on it. So. What do you do in the case of a day when you have to constantly confront failure? And the answer is you have to have enough energy to keep going. And that energy comes from somewhere. And the, the interesting trick is that sometimes the cereal that I eat for breakfast or the TV show that I watched the night before or, you know, a conversation that I had with my wife a week ago, you know, is the thing that makes or breaks my performance on the job, Right. So, you know, if I have this, you know, family problem and I'm worried about one of the kids or I'm stressed out about the fact that, you know, my car doesn't start or something like, you know, like there's a cost to that. And I don't think of it as affecting my work performance, but it really does because I come to the office with a little bit less energy and a little less resilience. And then some giant problem shows up and I'm depleted. I can't solve it. And that, that, problem just knocks me on my ass. And so I, I like this idea of a personal energy score because it forces me to actively think about the things that I do that allow me to do the things that I do. And Jim, where can listeners find the book, find you and your work online? So I put up a website, jimmckelvey.com, and I apologize to everybody. I'm not on social media. So actually, one of the ways I manage my personal energy, getting back to personal energy, is I don't use social media. I don't use Facebook. I don't use Twitter. I don't use Instagram. I have a LinkedIn account. I don't use it ever. I mean, I, it's sort of, it's there and like maybe once or twice a year, I'll check it. I may, I may have to start doing it now that I've written the book. So that may change by the time we broadcast this. But generally, you're not going to find me on social media. Why? 
because I find it drains my energy. I find it stresses me out. I find it's one of those things that at the end of the day has taken energy from me as opposed to given energy to me. So if you want to find me, jimmckelvey.com, and then the book is published by Penguin, and I'm sure will be for sale on Amazon. Like this is this is the great irony of starting a book where you know your lead story is being attacked by Amazon because you know as I'm writing this, I was like, oh man, these guys are going to have to sell my book. <laughs> but I didn't hold back. I figured they they're big enough; they're not going to care what one guy says. And actually, Amazon was really cool about the way they handled one square one because after Square beat them, they mailed everybody a little square reader. So great end to that story. Yeah. And that's just one of many really fascinating and great stories throughout the book. By the way, big respect for not being on social media. I think that's such a great decision and one that people are continuing to migrate towards in many ways as we see how dangerous it can be for us. But either way, Jim, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing all this wisdom. Oh, Matt, man, I love what you do. And you know, your listeners may not know that you and I actually met under totally different circumstances in a different organization that I'm also part of, you know, FinTop Capital is, you know, we've, so our paths have crossed and I've got tremendous respect for you and what you do and also for your listeners, because, you know, the people who listen to these things are trying to better themselves, they're trying to do new things and they're trying to come up with ideas and, you know, that's admirable. So go, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're gonna get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Mm -hmm.